Once again, I want to thank the elders for giving me the opportunity of being with you this weekend. I've been very blessed in your presence, conversation, the way you listen and respond to the word, both taught and preached. I pray for this work and will continue to do so and cover your prayers for our work at Greenville Seminary. Open your Bibles to Job chapter 41. There's promise, kids. We're going to read the uh, whole chapter. Job 41. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose? Or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Or will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you? you take him for a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you bind him for your maiden? Will the traders bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons? Or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, your expectation is false. Will you be laid low even at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he that can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength are his orderly frame. Who can strip off his outer armor? Or who can come within his double mail? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth there is terror. His strong scales are his pride, shut up as with a tight seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezes flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame goes forth from his mouth. In his neck lodges strength and dismay leaps before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together, firm on him and immovable. His heart is as hard as a stone, even as hard as a lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty fear, because of the crashing, they are bewildered. The sword that reaches him cannot avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He regards iron as straw, bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot hurt him or make him flee. Sling stones are turned into stubble for him. Clubs are regarded as stubble. He laughs at the rattling of javelins. His underparts are like sharp pot shirts. He spreads out like a threshing sledge on the mine. He makes the depths boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a jar of ointment. Behind him he makes a wake to shine. One would think the deep to be gray-haired. Nothing on earth is like him, one made without fear. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Thus far God's holy word. Let's pray. Again, Holy One, you who are great and incomparable, we ask that now, uh, through this revelation of this creature, you would do for us what you designed in the revelation of this creature to Job and create in us wonder and awe as we are in your presence. May your Spirit open the word to us now in power. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. You know, there are things that do fill us with dread. Dark, dark night. 
black, you can't see a thing. Often that just the very sense of the darkness brings dread. And then go to the bottom of one of those caverns and they turn off all the lights. You cannot even see your finger right in front of your eyes. And there's a, an awful feeling of dread to be in that kind of situation. Or stand at the foot of a great mountain and feel its towering weight and you are often overcome with a certain sense of dread. And that's good. God has designed things in the creation to remind us of our frailty and his greatness. And that's exactly what he's doing tonight in Job chapter 41. He's taking this incomparable creature, the Leviathan, to fill us with dread and awe, not of the creature, but of God. In chapter 41, we come to the conclusion of God's last word. We started at the beginning this morning in chapter 38, 1 through 15. God calls Job to an accounting. He indicts him for the language he's spoken, and he challenges Job to go into a wrestling match with him. God, in a sense, puts Job through a tutorial. In chapters 38 and 39, he just keeps asking questions, first about creation and then about providence, each question illustrating that God alone is the one who can do these things and that we can do nothing. We don't in any way participate in them. As to be expected, at the end of those two chapters, Job begins to repent. Chapter 40, Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproaches God answer it. And Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth once I've spoken, and I will not answer even twice, and I will add nothing more. Now, you would think that's the end of the day. God has accomplished his purpose. But we learn a very important lesson here about repentance. God is not looking for casual repentance. God is not looking for halfway repentance. God is looking, probing, searching for thorough repentance. And so God continues with Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. Remember, he's come in the storm. Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me, will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? And can you tremble a thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity. Clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud. Make him low. And then in verse 15, Behold now, be a moth, which I made, as well as you see. He directs his attention to this first great creature. And then when he finishes with the behemoth, and I'll come back to behemoth, uh, we come now to chapter 41 to the Leviathan. And what's going on here is that God directs our attention to this incomparable creature that we might know him and respond to him as the incomparable creator. God directs our attention to an incomparable creature in order that we might look on Him as the incomparable Creator. I'll try to do two things here. I first want to give you a description of Leviathan in order to understand who is this incomparable creature? What is this incomparable creature? And then second, what are the lessons about the incomparable Creator? Now the whole chapter describes for us Leviathan. And I want to look at the Leviathan description both in terms of his physical description and then how men relate to him. So I'm going to reverse the order of the text. I'm going to start with verse 12 and work through verse 34 to look at the physical description of Leviathan. Then we'll go back to verses 1 through 11 and uh, look at the relationship of uh, man to Leviathan. So, what was 
the Leviathan. Well, traditionally, commentators have said that the Leviathan was probably a whale because he's huge, he lives in the sea, he makes a, a wake of water as he, uh, as he swims through the sea. But, of course, we see here that Leviathan has scales. And so, whales don't have these kind of scales, do they? And so, many have said that it's really a crocodile. And they focus on the armor and the fierceness of the creature and his teeth. But, of course, our crocodile don't swim through the sea and fill men with dismay and fear and make a great wake wonder how they got to either one of those. Well, because that doesn't work really well, uh, others have suggested, well, Leviathan is really simply a mythological creature. And that God is, uh, is borrowing something out of fictional literature in order to uh, teach Job. But in fact, in Psalm 104, uh, we're told that the Leviathan, in fact, is a sea monster a real sea monster made by God. So in Psalm 104, verse 24 and 25, O Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you've made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There's the sea great and broad in which are swarms without number, animals both small and great. There the ships move along and Leviathan, which you have formed to sport or play in it. Quite clear, at least it is to my small brain, that Leviathan really was a creature. A creature that was made by God and played in the sea. Well, let's look at the physical description. The preface is in verse 12. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his orderly frame. God just looks at him, tells Job and us to look at him, and he says, you know, just consider this creature. Consider his mighty limbs. Consider his great strength. And then what's quite remarkable, consider his orderly frame. Now, the time we finish with uh, with Leviathan, the picture you might have is Godzilla. This ugly, ugly monster. But God introduces Leviathan by pointing out there's a certain raw beauty in him. That with all of his strength, there is an order about him. There's a certain, shall we say, grace to him in his limbs, in his proportion, in how he himself handles himself in the sea. That introduction to Leviathan, God just starts with the face and works down. So first he describes his face in verses 13 and 14. Who can strip off his armor, his outer armor, which is really his skin? Who can come within the double nail, which really means uh, his double bridle? Who can open the door of his face around his teeth? Around his teeth there is terror. There's a look at the face of this creature. You won't want to do it a second time. It says as you look at him, you can't strip the skin off and begin to strip him down. You capture this thing, you kill it, you don't begin at the top and then remove his skin and his armor. You can't strip off his armor by beginning with his face. In fact, his jaws are so strong that the metaphor is a double bridle. They couldn't be controlled by a single bridle. It's like a mighty horse controlled by a double bridle. And you don't want him to open his mouth, you see, because he has teeth that will fill you with terror. So he starts there, right at the face of the Leviathan. Now, if that's not enough, he goes on then to describe his armor. His strong scales, verse 15, are his pride. Shut up as with a tight seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. Now he has scales, but not like fish. 
He has scales that are like metal armor. In fact, that's his, his pride, his uh, confidence. Uh, the scales are so tight together, one overlapping the other, that air can't get between them. You ever tried to winter, winterize a house? That you've got double pane windows and everything to get rid of uh, some movement of air. It's impossible. I've read that we lose 75% of our air through our electrical sockets. But this creature, the scales are so close together that even air can't get between them. In fact, it goes on to say you can't pry them apart. They're as if they were welded together. You can't put a crowbar in there and begin to pry up one level of scale armor from the other. These scales, his armor, it is impenetrable. But now he goes on to talk about this animal is one who looks like and in fact breathes fire. His sneezes flash forth light, verse 18. His eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. That when he sneezes, it's so ferocious that the moisture that comes out glistens in the sunlight. It's like diamonds. And that's again, people compare him to a whale. So when a whale uh, blows and all that moisture goes up in the air, it can look like fire in his eyes. Why he opens wide those eyelids of his and looks at you and they are as piercing and bright as the morning sun. But it's not just in appearance. For you see, now he goes on to say that this animal actually breathes out fire. In verse 19, out of his mouth go burning torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. God says that the Leviathan uh, breathed fire. It was like there was a torch in his mouth, and like a big blowtorch, and he would exhale, and, and fire would go out. Even when he was at rest, there was smoke coming out of his nostrils, like a furnace, because there was some kind of fire burning in his belly. Now, some again say, well, that just can't be. That's impossible. But there's no impossibility at all. I mentioned this morning the bombardier beetle, a little beetle that has two chambers and can generate uh, noxious gases and expel them almost at the temperature of boiling. We hear a lot about ethanol. You can take vegetable material and make methane. Well, all this creature would need is to have the apparatus of an electric eel that can generate 650 volts of electricity. And you've got a creature that generates fog. You've got a creature that's got all this armor. He's got uh, all of this gas floating around in some chamber. And it's smoldering. There's nothing uh, impossible about what God is describing to us here. This Leviathan was a fire-breathing animal. And the fire was so hot that it could ignite a coal. Now, coal is not easy to, to ignite. But just the, the sparks of the breath of the creature, the fire is so hot that immediately a chunk of coal would catch fire. Well, then he goes on to talk about uh, his indomitable strength. In his neck, lodges strength and dismay leaps before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together firm on him, immovable. His heart is as hard as a stone, even as hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty fear, because of the crashing, they are bewildered. The sword that reaches him cannot avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He regards iron as straw, bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Fling stones are turned into stubble for him. Clubs 
are regarded as stubble. He laughs at the rattling of the javelin. He's such a ferocious creature. As his mighty neck raises this fire-breathing head out of the water, and sailors would see that head in the water, they would be filled with dismay. They would be absolutely bewildered and undone even at the sight of him. His strength seen in his body, uh, the folds of his flesh are, are joined together, firm, impenetrable, immovable, a hard as hard as stone. A millstone. A millstone is a lower stone. And it had to be extra hard because the grain he placed on top of the lower stone and then a top stone pulled by uh, oxen or water would turn and grind the stone. So in the Bible, the, mill, the lower millstone becomes the figure for that which is extremely hard and impenetrable. And it says his heart is as hard as a millstone. Now that could be that if you could penetrate the armor and the flesh, that you still couldn't penetrate his heart. His heart was physically as hard as a millstone. Or it could simply be one of the ways of saying that it knew no fear. There was no other creature that could cause it to fear, as God says of him in verse 33, nothing on earth is like him, one made without fear. Because of the strength, we'll come back to this, but there was nothing devised by men that could destroy him. And God gives quite a list, doesn't he? With the normal weapons of warfare. Swords, spears, darts. In fact, for this animal, iron was like straw and bronze like rotten wood. Arrows can't penetrate him. Clubs are like stubble. And a whole army of javelins while he would simply laugh. He then concludes with kind of the overall impression in verses 30 through 34. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads out like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the depths boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a jar of ointment. Behind him he makes a wake to shine. One would think the deep to be gray-haired. Nothing on earth is like him. One made without fear. He looks on everything that is high. He's king over all the sons of pride. Now the lion's the king of the animals of the jungle. But Leviathan is the king over all of God's animal creatures. Even at rest, He's, he has no vulnerability. It's said of dragons that they would have a soft underbelly. We actually can use that figure of speech, that uh, the way you defeat someone is to find their soft underbelly. He doesn't have a soft underbelly. His underparts also are like very sharp pieces of broken pottery. And so uh, he lies in the mire on the bottom of the ocean and he's tearing that up the same way that a threshing sledge would go across uh, grain and thresh it. And actually God uses that figure, uh, this word, to talk about God threshing, pulverizing mountains. Why, there's no place he is. He's vulnerable. And when he sports in the ocean, the depths boil like a pot. The sea is placid and smooth and suddenly up comes this mighty head and a tail thrashes, and the ocean is turned into a great storm. He uses two figures uh, to help us uh, understand that it's like a jar of ointment, smooth until you begin to dip your finger into it, and then it's all rippled across the top. Or, when he swam, the wake was like that of a mighty freighter. So it appeared that the ocean was an old gray-haired man because of his great strength as he swam through the water. A king over all the sons of pride. Well, we're not surprised then to read the introduction of the relationship of men to Leviathan. And God quickly tells us three things. In the first place, 
he tells us that you cannot catch Leviathan the way you catch any other sea creature. And so he says, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Well, you've read the description. Press down his tongue with a cord, maybe get a snare into his mouth. Can you put a rope on his nose? Lead him. Or can you pierce his jaw with a hook? Put him on a stringer. No. All the ways known to men to catch sea animals were impossible. In fact, he'll go on to, to say uh, in verse 7, you can't fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears. There was, he's not afraid of these implements described at the end of the chapter because there's not one of them or all of them used together with which men can capture this animal. So he can't be captured by men. Well, the second thing God tells us, he cannot be domesticated. There's not many animals that cannot be domesticated. James will say that we can tame all kinds of beasts, but not this one. Will he make many supplications to you, or will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you, and you take him for a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird, or will you bind him for your maiden? Again, God's wonderful irony. A dog will cower at your feet. He'll kind of make those little whiny noises. He supplicates you for favor. He comes and looks at you with those big round brown eyes and he wants his, his treat. Is Leviathan going to approach you the way a pet dog approaches you? Or can you make a covenant? Can you bring him in submission to yourself and turn him into uh, a beast of burden? Well, I mean, if you just had one of these, you'd think all the barges he could pull across the ocean for you. Then he could heat you at night. But no, you're not going to make a covenant with him and make him a servant. He's absolutely unusable. Well, how about a pet then? Huh? Play with him as with a bird. Maybe you've got birds at home in the cage. You want to put Leviathan in a cage? Maybe you'll put him on a leash and give him to your girlfriend for Valentine's. Dripping with irony, isn't it? He cannot be domesticated. He can't be captured, subdued, killed. He can't be domesticated. At least the third thing, he's in as of no profit whatsoever to any human being. In verse 6, will traitors bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? Capture him and bring him into the harbor and say, we'll give you Leviathan meat. What's the highest bidder? He's of no use whatsoever to men. Uh, There's no profit in this creature. They can't subdue him. They can't trade him. They can't bargain with him. So what is the Leviathan? A whale? Well, a whale does swim in the water and make uh, great wakes and turn the water into gray-haired men. It can have spouts that look like diamonds uh, in the sky. Whales don't have armor, do they? Whales don't have these thick scales and impenetrable bellies. Whales don't breathe fire. Well, then, of course, it has to be a crocodile. Got these great scales and these awful teeth. But, uh, oh, and whales can be killed with harpoons, right? But crocodile is not big like this. Crocodile doesn't breathe fire. A crocodile also doesn't have that kind of belly. In fact, I've seen people rub the belly of a crocodile and put it to sleep. Crocodiles can be killed as well. Alligator meat's pretty good. What is it? You ready? You haven't figured it out? Smog. You laugh. But it's smog. What we have here is a dinosaur creature that was a dragon. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 27, it's called a sea dragon. Isaiah 27, 1. And that day the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, 
even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. You know, when every culture on the face of the earth has a dragon that's fairly similar to what we have just read here, you realize there had to be some prototype. This was maybe not the only dragon. Maybe we're flying dragons as well, but this was a sea dragon. It was a dinosaur. In fact, in England and Norway, they discovered skeletons of what they call a plesaurus with eight-foot head, huge neck, 40 feet long, weighing 10 tons. Sounds an awful lot like Leviathan, smog, the Leviathan. There's nothing strange about this. And it answers all of these questions that our children start asking us because little boys in particular have a fascination with dragons. I bet some of you boys could tell me the names of all the dragons. But then you want to know, well, Mama, where did the dragons come from? And of course, the evolutionist tells you, well, dragons, they lived long before man was ever on the earth. But then you see in your answers from Genesis book that there is a strata that has both dragon remains and human footprints. Hmm. Now, how does that happen, Mr. Evolutionist? Well, God tells us how it happens. Dragons and men lived on the earth at exactly the same time. The behemoth also was a dragon. He was a very gentle, vegetable-eating dragon who lived in the water, but people could actually play alongside him. Nobody wanted to play alongside Leviathan. Now, at the original creation, these were not fierce creatures. And as other creatures transformed by the curse, or deformed by the curse, became treacherous and terrible, so did Leviathan. But Leviathan was still on the face of the earth when God addressed Job. In fact, Leviathan was still on the face of the earth, it appears, when the psalmist wrote Psalm 104. And in the memory of God's people, when Isaiah wrote Isaiah chapter 27. And so we go back to Scripture, and this is where we begin to do our science. There's nothing fantastical about dinosaurs. God created them. You wouldn't have had to put Leviathan in the ark. He was in the sea. Uh, he would have survived the flood. But he's extinct today. But I believe that what we have here is a very clear biblical record of dinosaurs created by God living on the earth when men were on the earth. And that directs our attention then to the incomparable Creator. I want to tell you four things about God that I think we get from, uh, from these verses. And we begin with that very statement that God in fact is incomparable. You know, God asks the question verse 10 no one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him who then is he that can stand before me? Here's this creature untamable absolutely ferocious fills men with dread incomparably great in contrast to all other creatures that God made. But obviously the maker is superior to the creature. And God is telling Job, and God is telling you and me, look at Leviathan and think how wonderfully incomparable I am. This is the message of the psalmist in Psalm 135. For I know that the Lord is great, verse 5, that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and in earth, in the sea, in all the deeps. He causes vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for man, who brings forth the word from His I'm sorry, I've stepped on my good glasses this morning and these are not as strong. Who brings forth wind from his treasuries. I really can read, believe me. I just um, have these weaker glasses and the print and the light. So, God's incomparably great. 
Who is great like our God? Well, we have trouble with words like greatness. And so God says, look at Leviathan. Consider all the description of this incomparable creature and then just lift your mind above him to me. I'm great. I designed him. I made him. I sustained him. And as we'll see, I, God, destroyed him. So the very first lesson is that God is incomparable. You understand that, I hope. You see how this deals with everything in the book of Job. Quit trying to compare me to men. Quit trying to puzzle out by human justice and human lines of reasoning what ought to be happening in your life and what I ought to say and what I ought to do because God's in a category of one. And I hope tonight that your God is in a category of one. That's what all of Psalm 135 is about. He goes on to compare the true God to false gods. And they have mouths they can't speak and eyes they can't see and all of that and yet He made them. The mouth, the eyes, the ears. He's incomparably great. The second lesson is the one that God directly gives us in verses 8 through 10. We're to fear Him. Lay your hand on Leviathan and remember the battle. He'll never do it again. You're not too slow. Once will be enough. Behold, your expectation is false. Will you be laid low even at the sight of Him? No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he that can stand before him? See, God's designed, as I said, things like darkness and mountains. But God designed creatures also to fill us with fear. And we don't, in our own strength, and might want to do hand-to-hand combat with a lion in the wilderness, with a grizzly bear, with a shark, or a crocodile, do we? We see it. We want to get away. We dread it. There's lots of things in this world that we fear, and that's simply being smart. There are things that we need to fear. And Leviathan's at the very top of the list. I don't think you'd go to the beach anymore if there were still Leviathan. But God says, why then do you want to go toe-to-toe with me? Why don't you fear me, the Creator? And Leviathan, like all other dreadful creatures, have been designed by God to teach us to fear Him. Do you fear God? Now, a Christian is to fear God. But let me talk to non-Christians. Do you have a dread of God? Now, you would dread a Leviathan. You wouldn't want to be locked up in a room with a hungry lion or a grizzly bear. Do you realize that's nothing to the day that you will face this holy God and give an accounting for your life, your thoughts, your words, your deeds? That should fill you with dread. Because He knows you inside and out. There's no escape. There's no excuses. He's going to lay it all out before you and He's going to cast you in hell. And hell is a million times worse than Leviathan. But the Christian, we too are to fear him. Now our fear is different. Our fear grows out of love and faith and reverence. But the beginning of fear, which is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of fear is that God is God, I'm the creature, and I must come to God on his terms. The fear of God is marked by a belief that he has spoken to us his word, We have a desire to come to Him on the basis of His revelation. We have a desire to please Him according to His Word. Do you fear God? Or as a professing Christian, are you playing games with God? Now, the fear of God is what drives us into the arms of Christ. Because in Christ, all the dread is removed. All the terror is taken away. He's still an awesome God. I think it's C.S. Lewis who says he's not safe. But that's okay. He's glorious. We should fear him. That's another lesson. A third lesson about God that we have here is in verse 11. And that is he's sovereign. 
Who has given to me that I may repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Now start with the second half of the verse. God is saying, let's reason backwards. Leviathan is over all the creatures sovereign. He's independent. He needs nothing else. He answers to no one else. But God says, you know, I made Leviathan. I made Leviathan to be independent of everything else. In fact, I own Leviathan and I own everything else. The hippopotamus or the behemoth and Leviathan and you, Job, and you and each one of you. I own all of you. And I'm sovereign. And it's great that we sang about sovereign grace because I deal with you according to my own good pleasure. And even as my children, I deal with you according to my own good pleasure. I don't answer to you, God says. Don't call me to an accounting. Now, it's not wrong to ask why. And sometimes God will give us the answers. But we must be satisfied with what He does give us or with His silence. And then He applies it to merit in the first half of verse 11. Who has given to me that I should repay him? This Job, I don't owe you anything. And the Leviathan doesn't owe you anything. You can't collect from him. I made him. You cannot collect from me. God says, you cannot put me in your debt. Quit calling me to an accounting. Quit saying that I'm not just. Quit saying what I really should have dealt with you in this way rather than the other way. Now, it's quite remarkable. I, I trust that some of you will recognize these words because at the end of Paul's discussion of the sovereignty of God in salvation, he quotes these words in Romans chapter 11. That remarkable doxology. Beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who uh, has become His counselor or who has first given to him that it might be given back to him again. There's our verse. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Who's given to God that God has to repay? Who's put God in debt? Who by merit? And see, that's the conclusion. The question begins there in, in Romans 9, picked up from Romans 3, but really reiterated in Romans chapter 9. God, if you're faithful, why did you cast off your covenant people? Why have so few of the uh, Israelites believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? And God basically says, that's the way I intended to do it. I have an elect remnant. And uh, he spells out uh, election in chapter 9. He gets into the inscrutable ways of God's uh, converting process in chapter 10. And then in chapter 11, it gets all the more mysterious because he says, you know, I haven't cast them off forever. I'll tip my hand here. Uh, I'm one day, I, I cut most of the natural branches off. I have been grafted in now, and from our perspective, the last 2,000 years, you Gentiles. And, and you best persevere by grace because I can cut you off too. But God says... I am going to engraft in the great majority of the Old Covenant people sometime in the future. Well, God, if you're going to save them in the future, why don't you just save them in 100 A.D.? Because God's ways are inscrutable. They're past our finding out. And salvation is not something that can be bought or bartered over or traded. We don't stand before God and say, look, I'll give you all my railroads if you give me part place. I'll give up these sins if you'll just do this for me. He doesn't play monopoly with us. He's sovereign. And He saves whom He will save. He disposes of our lives the way He would. Now, this is not some blind fatalism. We're not talking about a despot. We're talking about the most beautiful, glorious being in all of the earth is absolutely sovereign. But you need to understand he's absolutely sovereign. Leviathan's the answer to Arminianism. Next time you talk to one of your Arminian friends, you say, you ever thought about the Leviathan? What does that tell you about God and free will and, and all these other things? He does what he wants to do. 
He couldn't be God. He was not independent. And he does what he wants to do in salvation. And if you're not a Christian tonight, you need to understand that as well. If he passes you by, you are damned forevermore. Now what's your response to that? Saved, I'm saved, I'm not, I'm not. No. If you hear me say, if he passes you by, you're damned, you ought to fall on your face in front of him and say, I have nothing, I deserve nothing, but God, don't pass me by. I plead with you. That's a great mystery. We can analyze it, and you couldn't do that if he didn't first work in you, but that's not where you're to begin. You've got a responsibility tonight, dear friend. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. The absolute debtor of free grace. As we just sang. The free grace is glorious. If there were no free grace, none of us would be saved. God's sovereign and independent. The creation of the Leviathan teaches us that. And we cast ourselves on him. So he's incomparable, he is dreadful. He is sovereign and dependent. And the fourth lesson that we have here from Leviathan is that God is indomitable, which means he is unconquerable, who is conquering all. Leviathan could not be conquered by men. But Leviathan is extinct, as far as we know, in uh, September of 2014. And God tells us why Leviathan is extinct in 2014. In Psalm 74. There he says, You divided the sea, verse 13, by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him his food for creatures in the wilderness. God made him. He could not be conquered by men. But the unconquerable one, God, destroyed him. And once again, that reminds us of the folly of war against God. He's not going to win. Satan's not going to win. I like to compare Satan to the Roadrunner uh, cartoons. He's the coyote. And a lot of you are too old, too young for that. But the coyote <laughs> knew he was going to get beat. But he always kept coming back trying to get the Roadrunner. Satan and their demons, Revelation 12, tells us that they know they're doomed. It's malice. It's hatred of God. The inability to get at God, to get at Christ, they lash out at us. God is indomitable. God is not going to be conquered. That will be conquered by you either. You can shake your fist in His face all day long, but Paul says, quote in the Old Testament, that there comes a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. You refuse to confess Him now, you will confess Him. You confess him on the day of your death. You confess him on the day of judgment when it's too late. It's so stupid to fight against God. It's so glorious to rest in God and to find the comfort that is there. But God who defeated Leviathan is going to defeat all of our enemies. And so in Isaiah 27 that we already read, he's talking about the defeat of the enemies of the church. And he says, I have and destroying Leviathan. I am destroying the sea dragon. And there God is reminding us that He is destroying all of His and our enemies. They can't win. ISIS cannot win. All the despots of the world cannot win. They can kill hundreds and thousands of Christians and all they're doing is ushering the real Christians into heaven. They can't win. They're under God's thumb, as we were reminded in the prayer this morning. Christ is on the throne. Christ is unconquerable. And they're only fulfilling His purposes, just as Leviathan fulfilled His purposes. They're fulfilling His purposes. He's defeated Satan. In Revelation 12, Satan's called the dragon, the great dragon that ultimately Leviathan is a picture of Satan. The most dreadful enemy that you and I have, Satan and the demons. And yet on the cross and in the resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ dealt the death blow. He's writhing. And that tail can do a lot of damage. But we've had 
We've had our D-Day. We've had our Normandy. And V-Day is coming. And Christ comes again. Makes all things perfect. So you rest there. In this incomparable God. You see what he can teach us from creation? His power. His glory. His sovereignty. His dreadfulness. His unconquerableness. His indomitableness. This is what the incomparable creature teaches us about the incomparable creator. It teaches us then how to look at the creation. Get your eyes and your mind trained. Look around you and train yourself so that the things that you see will lift your mind up to God and fill you more frequently with praise and help you learn how to pray without ceasing. When Thomas Stonewall Jackson was asked about praying without ceasing, he said, well, that's not hard at all. He simply had assigned all the different everyday things that take place to remind him to pray. cup of water, Christ satisfies his thirst. piece of bread, Christ is the bread of life. A piece of mail comes, he prays for the person who sent him the letter. Turn all of life, all the normal things of life, all the extraordinary things of creation into reminders to pray. And to pray. And then, don't fight against God's sovereignty, but rest comfortably. Rest confidently in the one who made, who controlled, who destroyed, provided. And above all, don't be afraid of modern science. They can't explain Leviathan, and they themselves are no Leviathan. Amen. We thank you and bless you, O holy God, for this revelation of who you are, of what you do and have done that we might know you better. Bless these truths to us now for Christ's sake. Amen.